Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Now, we're going to turn to the Word of God this morning, and we're finishing Matthew 6 by reading together verses and looking together at verses 25 through 34. And I'd ask you to, to read along with me in your worship guide or in your Bibles as we do so. And again, this week as the last two, I want you to prepare by asking one of the members of your household to pray when we are done that God will bless the reading of his word. And I'm gonna give you about the same amount of time as we did last week, so be prepared. Have the, the child or whoever it is be ready to go. This is the word of God, Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. For this reason, I say to you, now we're, we're listening to Jesus, and remember, this is just the middle of a, of a long sermon that he preached on, on the mountaintop, probably a lot more contained than this in that sermon, and yet these are the bones of the sermon. He says, for this reason, I say to you, he's talking to this vast crowd, do not be worried about your life, and how appropriate these words are for us today, here in America, in our living rooms. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word of the Lord. Now let's pray as we said we would. Amen. This is a chapter, a portion of the sermon. I've, I think it's fair to divide this sermon into three parts, as the chapters do. Five being about righteousness, six being about reward, seventh being about judgment. I think it's right to do that, and this is a chapter that is all about reward from beginning to end. Jesus is speaking about where we find our reward, how we obtain reward. And we come this morning to what is perhaps the most destructive enemy of our receiving reward, the most destructive enemy of all, which is worry. Worry. Worry is corrosive. Worry is deadly. Worry is, uh, is toxic. 
to the reward, to the reward that is real reward, to the true reward, which is the reward Jesus is speaking about throughout this chapter. And I want to say to you this morning that I got up and I looked outside and I saw that the daffodils in the yard had survived the snow. And there were still little robins in the yard and sparrows, the same birds I believe that Jesus speaks about here, and they were chirping and hopping about. My car started when I went to get in the car and I made it here uneventfully and there was there's beautiful sun outside and it's going to be 60 degrees today and yet we are tempted to be worried about creeping death. And I want to say to you, <laughs> we don't tempt God. We don't jump from the top of the temple just because Satan says to. It's not wise to tempt God. We don't tempt God by going out and doing everything that we did normally when there is a pandemic going, and yet in the end, we trust God and we do not worry. Worry is worse than every other form of destruction of reward that Jesus speaks about in this chapter. He talks about our pride destroying our reward. He talks about our greed destroying reward, seeking the, the, the things of this earth. And we would say, well, certainly pride, you know, wanting to look good in our prayers is is the most destructive thing we can have towards reward from God. Surely the love of money is more destructive than worry. But actually, Jesus ends this chapter and he spends more time on worry than all the rest. And he says to us, do not worry. You know, you can be proud and you can love money and, and you can enjoy life in certain ways. But what worry does is to say to you that life itself is dark and it's dark precisely because there is no reward, there is no heaven. Because that's what you say when you worry. And so worry is toxic, worry is deadly. And I speak to us as people who are, who are tempted to be worriers this morning. And I want to speak to you about the great sin of worry, about two great reasons Jesus gives for not worrying, one is implicit, one is explicit. Uh, I want to speak about the sin of worry, about the reason not to worry that Jesus gives us, which is the character of his Father. Finally, I want to dwell on an implicit argument against worry, which is who it is who's speaking to us about worry. Jesus himself, about the, the nature and character of Jesus, the one who tells us not to worry, and the way he lived his life. And so these are two implicit, two explicit, one explicit, one implicit arguments against worry. And want to come to them. But first, the sin of worry. I've noticed over the years that if you're in a group of people who are going to confess their sins or called upon to confess their sins and they haven't established a practice of doing that, they're not accustomed to it. And there's someone in that group who really doesn't want to speak of the reality of sin in his life or her life, doesn't want to mention things like sexual fantasy, which is a truth of all of our lives, and yet we don't want to say that in a group that what you, what it, when it comes time to confess our sins corporately to, to each other as the Bible commends and as we do at times as a church, what, the, what you'll find is a person looking frantic and, and uh, uh, what am I going to say, what am I going to say? And nine times out of ten, what they're going to say when it comes time to confess something, if they're not going to be honest, is they're going to say, well, I worry. I, I've got to confess I worry a lot. As though worry is somehow a good sin, a, a sin that you can confess and it's really not a, a sin. I'm told by certain uh, friends in the church that there are, there are 
weaknesses you should confess when it comes to a job interview. If they ask you to name your weakness, well, always say, I'm, I tend towards impatience because the interviewer will go, ah, this is a hard worker. This is a person who likes to get things done. So it's actually a, a weakness that's a humble brag. It's a strength, really, to say, I suffer from impatience in a job interview. I think many of us think the same thing about worry when it comes to confronting our sins and confessing them to God. That if we say we're worrying, that we worry, what actually we're saying is, well, I'm a realist. I'm, I'm a responsible person. I'm, I'm thinking about the future. You may not. You may be running around without a care in the world, but I'm responsible. I'm not some crazy-eyed Christian enthusiast who goes off half-cocked because they don't worry. I'm a realist. I worry. Now, I want to start at the end of our passage, <laughs> which is not, a, a, not always a good thing to do when you're preaching, but I want to start with the last verse. Jesus finishes this lengthy part of his sermon in which he calls us to live for heavenly reward rather than earthly with one summary statement. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not worry. Does that sound to you like a command? Is Jesus commanding that we not worry? It's not just the final verse of this passage, in fact. It's the entire passage. Verse 25, for this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life. Ah, another command. As to what you will eat or drink, nor for your body. Another thing not to worry about. Don't be worried about your life, what you'll eat or drink, nor your body, what you'll put on. And who of you, verse 27, by being worried can add a single hour to his life. Verse 28, why are you worried about clothing? Verse 30, you have little faith. Do not worry then, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? You realize how many of the worries of the last month and a half are, are encompassed in what Jesus says in these verses? Do not worry about your finances. Of course, we're all worried about our finances, aren't we? Do not worry about your life. I'm not saying to jump off the temple. I'm not saying if you're older, not to be very careful. I'm being very careful about my, my family, uh, especially my, 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 uh, my in-laws. Yeah. Look, folks, I'm, I'm having my son look at me like I'm, I'm lying to you. I'm not lying to you. I'm telling the truth. You can't see it, but he's looking at me like, oh, yeah, dad. Well, I am being careful in certain ways. I am being careful. And I believe this verse has, these verses have many things to, maybe some of you are feeling the same way. It has many things to say to us. It's, it's relevant. It's right here. You can't add an hour to your life. You can be careful and you should. But even being careful doesn't add an hour to your life. God has determined the length of your days. Do not worry. It's a command. You can't accomplish anything by it. You can't change anything by it. This final verse in the King James Version at the very end goes, sufficient unto the day are the evils thereof. Now, as we read it, it says, each day has enough trouble of its own. But King James, sufficient unto the day are the troubles thereof or the evils thereof. In other words, what it's saying is you don't need to borrow trouble. 
You've got enough today. Don't think about tomorrow. Worry only about today. My mother used to quote this verse all the time. All the time. Don't borrow trouble. Sufficient unto the day are the evils thereof. There's enough to worry about today. I think my mother had learned this. I, she would say to me all the time, don't fret, David. I've told you this in the past, haven't I? I've told you about her, her condemnation of fretting and worrying, how she'd say, sufficient unto the day are the evils thereof. But it's remarkable because you would think that a woman who had had three sons die in childhood would have many reasons to worry. But I think, in fact, what happened is that God, through those deaths, burned worry out of her, caused her to realize how hopeless worry is, and made her a great mother for a guy like me who was tended towards worry. A mother would say, don't worry. Stop fretting. Sufficient unto the day are the evils thereof. It's a command. Which means that if you break it and you disregard it, you're committing a sin. And committing a sin like this should be embarrassing. It shouldn't be the first sin we're ready to confess. This is an evil sin. It's a great sin. Because if you confess God as your Lord and his son as your Savior, and yet you spend your days in worry, you're implicitly saying several things, both of which are evil and awful and far more deadly to you than anything you might be worried about. This sin is far more grievous and far more destructive than the things you worry about if you claim to know God. What are we stating implicitly when we worry? Well, perhaps we're saying something really bad. It's not bad in itself, but it's bad in what it conveys. If we say we're a Christian, but we worry, what we may be saying by that worry is that we really don't know Jesus. That we really don't know him and that we're outside in the darkness, but we think we're inside in the light. Remember, Jesus said in, in that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And, he, and I'll say, I never knew you. And this is a reality. And worry is one of the great indicators that this might be the case in our lives. Now, I'm, I understand we all worry, and I understand that it's a sin that we all commit. But if we live in worry, if we see no light in heaven and no reward and no hope, and if we're constantly, chronically worrying, then we may be saying that the reality is different than what we profess, that we don't actually know Jesus. We will disobey Jesus in this regard. Peter did so out of fear and worry, but Peter repented. He didn't live there. He became a non-worrier pretty quickly when he saw the resurrection. Resurrection, resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated last week, that should make non-worriers of all of us. What do we have to worry? <laughs> I'm reminded of the Mad Magazine, Alfred E. Newman, what me worry? What me worry? I'm going to resurrect. What me worry? Now, most of you are too young to understand what I'm speaking about, but the guys my age, this is a cool reference, all right? So, I hope that those, there's a few of you who understand this. I know you're going to worry as Peter did and that worry will drive you to other sins as it did Peter. You'll deny Jesus out of worry. I've done it and you will do it. 
But when we do this, we must repent as Peter did, turning aside from worry to faith and boldness as Peter did, because worry is not a singular sin, it's a fountainhead sin. Lots of other sins flow from worry. This is a mother and a father sin. It has many, many children. Because we worry, we lie, we evade, we are embarrassed and deny Jesus. We don't speak of him when we should. We are selfish. We give in to greed. All these other sins flow from worry. Perhaps worse, though, is the second thing implicitly we're saying when we worry. And that is that we're implicitly making a statement about the nature of God the Father. When we worry, we are saying things about God as a father. Jesus tells us not to worry for specific reasons, okay? And now we're coming to the second point of our sermon. Why are we not to worry? Because Jesus is is telling us the nature of God, his father, but he's calling this father of his, who is our God, your father. He's saying to them, your father, says it numerous times in this chapter in this whole thing and explicitly here your father twice in these verses he says your father your father God who is your heavenly father verses 26 and 32 God is the father of those who love and obey Jesus he's not only Jesus father but he's yours as well if you love and obey him and he is all powerful he's sovereign nothing escapes his notice Nothing is done outside his will. So he feeds the sparrows, the least and most insignificant creatures. He is governing every moment of their lives, providing them with the seed from your feeder and from the worms from your lawn alike. He is caring for them. Nothing escapes his notice. Birds have no power to plan or to set aside for the future. They can't bend the world to their, to their will as you think you can and as I think I can. The lilies, they have not even a mind to have a will with to obey God or to worry about the future. Yet God clothes them in splendor. He says, Jesus says, they're, they're much more gloriously clothed than Solomon in all his splendor. God throughout the word of God constantly drives us to nature and says look at nature understand me from nature understand who I am that's why I I say to you it's a beautiful day the daffodils are still up and rising these things are going on nature speaks the nature of God (laughs) I know that many of us have worried and done so for a long time Um, But before I speak more about the nature of God, let me say one last thing about the the sinfulness of worry. Worry not only maligns God, blasphemes him really by declaring that he's not as he's told us he is, declaring that he's not as Jesus has said he is. We're denying his nature as a good father when we worry. There is one further thing, and that is worry is contagious especially within the home. There are many sins that are committed by parents that, that devolve upon children, that become the sins of children. I, I'm not surprised at, at seeing friends from my days in high school who I knew had alcoholic fathers descend into alcoholism themselves. They hated it, and then they did it. And we all know that children who are abused often become abusers. 
Few things are more toxic for children spiritually than a home that is filled with doubt and worry. I tell you, I am grateful to God that my mother, who had all the reason in the world to worry about my life and the longevity of my days, didn't worry about that and told me to stop worrying. If you think worry is a good sin, you're wrong. You're breeding a lack of faith. You're breeding a doubt in the nature of God and your own children. Mothers, I speak to you particularly. I say, you must not worry. You must not give in to worry. This is toxic. And children are learning how to look at God by the way you lead your life. So what is the answer to worry? Well, it's the nature of God our Father. This is the explicit argument of Christ. He, he makes two arguments. Uh, he actually makes one, but he is himself a second implicit argument against worry. And, and he says in the, the answers he gives to our worries about what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, how we're going to live, how long we're going to live, what we need and how it will be provided for us. He says, well, God, God, your father, God. Think about God, you know, God, your father. That's what he says. He says, God, 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 your father, the great God. God of heaven and earth, the God who created it all, the God to whom Satan must go for permission to be, before he can lift a finger against you. God is God. God is your father. This God explicitly claims that he is sovereign. He is in control of everything. Now you say, yeah, he brings me good, but boy, I don't know about the bad. It seems like he's absent when it comes to the bad, but God doesn't say that. In the word of God, he says over and over again that he is in charge of all things, good and bad, and I want to read to you just to prove it. I am the Lord, this is Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Amos 3.6, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Ecclesiastes 7, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. The day of prosperity, the day of adversity. God has made the one as well as the other. And then uh, perhaps the, the most trumping argument of all, that God is sovereign, it's found in Acts 4, 27 and 28. It's Peter who is preaching and he says to God, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. And this is right after the resurrection. He's, this is shortly after the resurrection and he's speaking and he says, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, put Jesus to death in accord with the will of God who had predestined it. If God predestined the death of his son, Certainly God is working in COVID 
Certainly God is working in the things that you're facing right now. They are not outside his control. Now, God doesn't say these things to exalt over misfortune or to cause you, his children, to live in fear. (laughs) Of course, for rebels, this is cause for fear, to know that God is seeing and responding. He intends it as fear for rebels, for those who do not worship him and deny him. But the same hand that inflicts calamity on the unrighteous is the hand that stands as a guard on the lives of those who know him. It is the same hand. This is why it's such a comfort to know that God is in the calamity and not outside it. And that hand, the hand of God, is never raised in wrath against his children. Jesus took the wrath of God. This is why his sovereignty is such a great joy to those who know him. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has willed it, is it for our harm? So Jesus tells us, don't worry, because my father is also your father. He will take care of you. The God of heaven is looking after you. He loves you. You are his child. He will not allow you to be harmed. Now, of course, your father did things if he loved you uh, when you were growing up that you thought were harmful and you realized later were not. He, He spanked you. He made you go on long walks in the countryside, took you perhaps on camping trips and made you do canoeing when you thought you were going to die because it was so hard. At the time, it seemed hard. As you've grown older, you've realized it was loving. You've realized it was stretching. It was good for you. And God will do these things for us. But no harm, no permanent harm, nothing that's really going to harm us, nothing. Reading this past year in the Pastors College, Testimonies, of survivors of the Soviet prison camps, one of the things that was striking to realize is that the true communists, when they were, when they were put in the prison camp in the Gulag by Joe Stalin, they would say, well, surely Stalin doesn't know. And they'd write him impassioned letter after impassioned letter declaring their innocence. And there were people in the prison camps sent there by Stalin who would say, no, Joe Stalin didn't do this to me. He was misinformed. He would never do this to me, never willing to admit that, in fact, this was Joe Stalin. He said, but the Christians in those camps, the Christians never blamed God, but they lived in faith and happiness, and they were a testimony. Now, these are non-Christians who said it, but they say somehow the Christians never blamed God. But all the communists said, well, someone betrayed me. It wouldn't be the nature of of Stalin to do this. The Christian said, God has done this and God is good. This is the nature of God. Jesus tells us an antidote for worry. He says, don't worry. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Now I want to turn to the final, the implicit argument from the nature of Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek his righteousness. Seek God's will. And you'll get everything you need and more. And in this life as well, not just in eternity. Very often it says, you're going to be blessed in this life if you obey God. It's not going to be just in the life to come. I'm still confident of this, David writes. I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and of good courage and wait for the Lord. I will see God's goodness here and so will you. And it won't be brought about by worrying. 
It will be brought about by trusting God and seeking him in dark times. Seeking his kingdom, seeking his righteousness. These are the things that will be, and so I want to close with the picture of Jesus who came to earth. Turning aside from his glory in heaven, putting aside his crown to be born of a virgin, to be humbly brought into this world in the little hovel in Bethlehem, to live his life in that woe-begotten area of Galilee, Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? They say a humble life lived not in the palaces, not, not in even the house of a priest where he'd be closer to the, a carpenter's son brought up. And when he begins his ministry, he begins not as a man who is wealthy and famous and who went to the school of Gamaliel as Paul had, but as a nothing from nowhere, the son of God, trusting his father. He lived his life, we're told, with, he himself says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. Foxes have lairs and snakes have holes in the ground, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He had no place. He had followers, but they were fickle. They turned away. We think of Jesus who tells us to trust God and we see in him a perfect picture of trust in God. He went on his final journey to Jerusalem telling his disciples the whole way, I'm going to die, I'm going to my death, I'm going to die, I'm going to my death. So much so that finally... Thomas, doubting Thomas, says to the others, well, he's insisting on it. <laughs> we may as well go with him and die as well. He knew what he was headed towards. That whole trip as he comes to Bethany and he weeps over Lazarus in his death and then raises him to life, he knows what's lying ahead. He weeps as he makes the, the entry into Jerusalem, saying, oh, if you would only know what would save you, if you would only understand what has come, but they don't understand. The crowds that praised him on the way into town are not too many days hence going to call out and say, no, we don't want him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the, this wicked murderer. Let us have Barabbas set free rather than Jesus. He goes to Jerusalem and, and he celebrates the Passover when he enters the city. And there at the table with him is one who he's had with him for three years who's going to betray him and he knows it. And he's walking into betrayal. That night when he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father and says, Lord, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine. He submits to the will of God, which is hard, hard, hard. Because he knows the glory of God. Because he knows the love of his Father. He goes from the Garden of Gethsemane, captured to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where he's mocked and struck, and where he looks at Peter and realizes that Peter has just done as he said, has betrayed him three times. His friends betray him. His enemies mock him. And then, condemned by Pilate, he goes to his death, the death of a common criminal, and endures the death of a criminal on the cross, and you think this is the Son of God. This is God's Son. This is God's will. This is God's plan. He had predestined this, all of it. 
And Jesus embraces all of it. And so we see something of the glory of God. Jesus didn't escape it. Jesus was glorified through it. Hebrews 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. There's glory in running from worry. Glory. Jesus teaches us this. We are called to glorify God by not worrying. And I call on you, do not worry. Instead, seek the glory of God, his kingdom, his righteousness, and you'll have everything you need. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the example that it puts before our eyes of Jesus Christ, our Savior, this glorious man who in his humanity accepted every blow that you had him struck by. Father, those that are metaphorical and those that were real, there were both. We praise you for his trust in you and we thank you for the glory that was set before him and which he experienced in the resurrection and now seated at your right hand. Father, may we trust you as Jesus, our Savior, trusted you. May we not worry. May we turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.